PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. And Eclipse interfaces with programs like Redoc to create a true paperless office. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. When we think about preterm babies and babies who are born with either significant brain injury or not significant brain injury, we're really talking about one of our most fragile populations. We don't know how the cerebellum develops because we only have really good data in the adults. I think this paper makes a huge contribution to the knowledge that development does not occur cephalocaudally. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Feet Reaching in Preterm Infants. This discussion is based on a paper published in the October 2009 issue of PTJ. Dr. Doreen Bartlett joins both authors, Dr. Jill Heathcock and Dr. James Cole Galloway, to discuss the implications of this work to clinical care and the theoretical foundation of infant development. This discussion podcast is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Esther Thielen, a developmental psychologist whose work has influenced all three of today's participants. And now, our moderator for today's discussion, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craik. Hello, my name is Rebecca Craik, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy. I'm delighted, and actually I'm even tickled to be here today, because today we're going to discuss an October 2009 paper in Physical Therapy. The title of the paper is Exploring Objects with Feet Advances Movement in Infants Born Preterm. We are joined today by both of the authors, and we are also honored by the presence of Dr. Doreen Bartlett. The first author on this paper is Jill C. Heathcock, who is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at The Ohio State University. The paper we will be discussing represents work that was completed as part of Dr. Heathcock's PhD training, and Dr. Galloway was her mentor at the University of Delaware. This work was funded in part by the Foundation for Physical Therapy. Jill, welcome. Thanks, Becky. It's nice to be here. The second author, Dr. James C. Galloway, who most of us know as Cole, is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware. He also has an appointment in the Department of Psychology at the University of Delaware. Welcome, Cole. Hi, Beck. It's wonderful to be here. Dr. Galloway did his postdoctoral training with Esther Stillman Thielen. Dr. Thielen was a developmental psychologist who applied dynamic systems theory, or what the public knows as chaos theory, to the study of movement in babies. Her influence is certainly recognized in the conceptual framework of this paper. Jill, if we consider mentors as part of our family tree, I believe you can be considered as the science grandchild of Dr. Thielen. I wish she were still here to see how her research and the next generation of scientists push the envelope as we struggle to understand and change movement strategies in infants. So thank you both for this work. It's really exciting. Doreen Bartlett obtained her Ph.D. in Rehabilitation Sciences and is currently an associate professor in the School of Physical Therapy at the University of Western Ontario. Dr. Bartlett is also associated with Can Child, a center for child disability research. She uses very different research tools and designs than Dr. Heathcock and Galloway. So I think it'll be fun to have an interchange between the two groups. 
Thank you very much, Becky. I'm really pleased to participate in this. This study was a randomized control trial that was designed to determine if eight weeks of daily physical intervention advances feet reaching in preterm infants. 13 children received a physical intervention and 13 children received social training. The dependent variables were the number of contacts of the foot with the toy, the duration of the time that the foot contacted the toy, and the number of contacts of the hand with a toy. The movement training group compared to the social training group developed a greater number of foot contacts with a toy and touched the toy longer with their foot. Okay, so that's my brief summary. Now, to Jill and or Cole, whoever would like to answer, can you talk about the relevance of this work to physical therapists? I think there are two main points of this article. The first is that preterm babies at a very young age show the ability to contact a toy with their foot before they do so with their hands. And this is a similar ability that we see in full-term infants, even though we know that this group of preterm infants is at risk for motor learning and motor coordination disorders, including some of these babies may be at risk for cerebral palsy. So I think that's the first important point. And the second important point is that they were able to change this behavior by doing a home program with their parents. So we saw some improvement in their motor skills over a relatively short period of time. Yeah, this is Cole. Um, First of all, Beck, thanks for bringing Esther into this discussion because she (laughs) would be, as you said, really thrilled that the developmental psychologists work since the 1980s showing that young babies can do really neat things with their legs when provided the opportunity has gotten all the way to somebody would say randomized controlled trial in a very formal sense because she and Jill and I and Doreen at the very core are just very interested in what children can do and the multiple factors that go into the emergence of a task when it wasn't there a month ago and all the opportunities then that that provides for pediatric therapists because if there's lots of factors involved in the emergence of a behavior, it means that therapists have a lot to work with in terms of working with families and educators on biomechanical and brain issues and social issues and environmental issues. And it's just so neat that in the randomized controlled trial, the trained infants didn't do just more kicking like we expected and wouldn't do just more hand reaching, which would have made an easier title. They did this crazy (laughs) thing called feet reaching. And so I think one of the things that Esther would say is that what is feet reaching doing in a title? You know, what, what are these babies really doing? And it, I think it grabs the general clinician as well as the experienced pediatric clinician and says, wait a minute, there's new stuff here. The feet reaching, what is this? Is it a real behavior? Is it something that we can work on? Is it reliably displayed? And so I think it starts to broaden the landscape with which the pediatric therapist looks at the child that's only a few weeks or a few months old. And maybe we don't have to wait for the first adult skill like reaching to emerge. We can tap into other things that babies can learn. Thank you, Cole. Doreen? Becky, I was also pleased that Esther Salen was brought into the discussion. Really pleased to hear that. I had a class yesterday where I talked with our first-year PT students about the role of dynamic systems and contrasting it with the historical theories of motor development, neuromaturation, and so on, and really having at least some of the students, not all of them, be quite excited and liberated about the idea that there is so much to work with. I guess in terms of relevance, certainly I agree with the two main points 
that Jill articulated and then the excitement that therapists should feel from what Cole has said. I really think, though, that one of the main points about relevance was this idea that infants born early need more movement experience. So what I really like about the work in this paper is the relevance of having kids move early. So both Jill and Cole were really emphasizing the task in terms of object interaction, and I think a direction we need to go in with these infants is encouraging more movement experience, and it really encourages a lot of directions for early intervention, which I have to say in Canada, the types of infants that were in the study here would be monitored, but they wouldn't be receiving intervention, and I think there are some very exciting things coming up in the future. If I can add to that, that this is Jill. The same thing would be true in Ohio and Delaware. Most of the infants in this study would be monitored in some sort of developmental follow-up clinic, but they would not be receiving physical therapy or occupational therapy unless they had some sort of significant or easily identifiable motor disability. But what I would like to comment on is this group of babies, whether you test them at eight months of age in terms of their anti-gravity postures or their movement against gravity, or if you test their range of motion in the NICU, or if you test their growth motor developmental scores from birth to 18 months of age on the AIMS, these preterm babies always show delays or differences from full-term babies. So one of my real interests is being able to identify these delays at a very early time and also treat them before we know there is a delay. So we know that the babies in this group, at least a large percentage of babies in this paper, are going to have some sort of delay later on. So I think in terms of early intervention, being able to treat them at an age before they show a delay would be helpful and new to early intervention programs. Mm So it's Doreen here. Um, I really encourage you to follow that route. You know, a lot of these children with no neurological problems have lower body mass, lower anaerobic muscle performance, lower fitness levels, less muscle strength, lower reaction times, poor coordination. On it goes, right? And I think we're missing a huge opportunity for early intervention if we focus only on identifying children with significant neurological problems such as cerebral palsy. I do think there's a whole group of children out there who it's worthy to pursue this idea of early intervention, remediating delays early, get these kids moving in order to diminish these poor motor performances in childhood and also the associated fitness issues as these children get older. So I congratulate you for moving on with this. This is Becky. Have there been data, Doreen, that actually quantitate these early preterms all the way through adulthood? I mean, Doreen, you're suggesting that the delay can continue into adolescence. Have people followed them to adulthood? Yeah, there's a colleague actually, Marilyn Rogers. She's followed a cohort of infants through to 17 years of age and has been able to demonstrate that those children who really didn't have any major neurological issues had lower fitness levels and so on. So I do think there's lots coming forward to indicate that although we've not highlighted those infants who are perceived to be high risk based on their low gestational age at birth and their low birth weight, they haven't been identified to be high risk in terms of their neurological performance as distinctly different from their motor performance. But I think the time is here, and Jill, it'd be great to see how you move this forward to really focus on the issue of motor performance, which really does need some early intervention to help out. So can I just ask a question? This is Becky speaking. Are you all saying that if children are born preterm, there's a high likelihood that they're going to have motor developmental delays up through adolescence? 
Is that the summary that I'm taking away from this discussion? It's Doreen, yeah, so higher likelihood, and I don't know if I would say high, but certainly moderate. Going to the literature, more than 40% of those children would have some motor differences in childhood that probably ought to have some intervention. That's excluding the 15% or so who would be identified to have cerebral palsy. They clearly need intervention. This is Jill. I was just going to add that a lot of these issues in motor performance that Doreen is talking about might be identified in school age, whether it be developmental coordination disorder or a clumsy child. And then I also wanted to add that a lot of these preterm infants also have some learning disabilities that are also identified during school age. This is Cole. If I can just dovetail on what Doreen and Jill are saying, just to highlight for the listener that the solution may not be simply better MRI, simply better brain techniques, simply better brain probing. But what we're talking about is the first real generation of focus on true brain behavior relationships. These are children that don't have glaring white spots on MRI. They don't have what people would call strong or hard neurological signs, yet when put into a typical environment, they can't show the type of adaptive behavior. And people sometimes call these motor behaviors. Jill alluded to a learning issue. In our lab, we piggybacked on Jill's work and counted on it heavily in our NIH study of early brain behavior where we've taken quantitative MRI in the first days of life and then tracked motor and perceptual and socialization through 18 months. And it's directly related to what Doreen and Jill have sort of put this urgency on is we need to know the brain behavior relationships very early on to get some kind of foundation to understand. And and that just brings up a whole litany of very basic issues of why other people in the scientific community should be listening and learning from physical therapists like Doreen and Jill, because when you ask, what do we know about the cerebellum, neuroscientists can tell you, and when you ask motor developmentalists, what can you tell me about reaching's development, they can tell you that. And you ask a pediatrician or a pediatric clinician to tell me about brain damage in preterm infants, and they can tell you that. But if you ask them, well, tell me how the cerebellum develops in the emergence of reaching in typically developing infants and those with special needs. No one on the planet can say that. We don't know how the cerebellum develops because we only have really good data in the adults. So back to this one little study on this strange thing called feet reaching, I do think it will be used as a tool, like Doreen said, to have a broader impact to say there really are people out there in the scientific community and they are physical therapists who can help with this very key brain behavior relationship understanding that's very critical. This is such an exciting discussion. I hope that other people are enjoying this as much as I am because it really does point out so many connections. So I'm going to shift topics for a little bit because I think there's another community that the work relates to. So we've talked about Esther Thielen today, and can you talk to us about the relevance of this work to dynamical systems theory? or to the neuroscience community at large? Yes, systems theory demands that almost everything can matter. And as a scientist or clinician, if you really take systems theory to heart, your job is to sort of find out what is mattering right now and how much it's mattering. That's a sobering thought, but it's also a very clinical thought. So if you constantly look at babies and believe in a cephalocaudal pattern, meaning that babies gain purposeful control from their head down to their bum or their feet, 
you will begin to see that in, in the typical environments that you put babies. They obviously get head control before they reach, and all babies reach before they walk. Therefore, because that's seen across all babies and all cultures, that must then equal there's a genetic play out from the brain's development in terms of maturation that gives you head control for free, and then reaching emerges when that module's ready, and then when the walking module's ready, walking emerges. And for a long time, that was the traditional model, and it made perfect sense. When you start to look at individual babies, and you start to look at multiple contexts, and you start to play with babies and be very grounded in the day-to-day activity of babies, you realize that, wait a minute, it's hard to say when babies have head control. It's hard to say when a baby's crawling. And moms and grandmoms and educators and therapists who work a lot with kids understand that you're crawling one day and the next day you won't crawl. And one day you're walking and the next day you're crawling. Wait a minute. Hang on. You know, you crawl before you walk. And so the reality gets to be that both researchers and clinicians that work closely with infants come to expect a lot more variability. And you start to have to explain things not based on just the brain's development, but you start to look for the interaction of motor, cognitive, social, perceptual. It's messy, it's frustrating, and you can't win. It's too complicated. So back to this study, which says that, number one, babies' feet reach, which is a real behavior. They got just kicking. They literally reach their little foot up, and they touch the ball, and then they play with it with their toes. If moms hadn't brought this to us when I was in Esther's lab and said, I'm sorry, my kid's not reaching, but, you know, Janie is feet reaching, and you hear that from one mom, and you think, hmm, okay. You hear that from four or five moms, and you think, well, that's something I should study. And like Jill said, we still haven't found the babies that won't at some point look you in the eye, look at the ball, raise up their little fat feet, and start playing with it. So that got us to thinking, well, maybe we should study this for real, and maybe we should see if preterm babies can do it. But one of the things that's sort of hidden in the paper is the fact that these preterm babies will feet reach before they're hand-reaching. Why would a baby foot reach before hand reaches? And why are classically preterm babies delayed in hand reaching, but yet they'll foot reach? And the only way that we could envision answering that is to go back to systems and take the cognitive, motor, social, perceptual, biomechanical, experiential learning aspects. And it wasn't easy. Jill and I talked and talked and talked about how do we explain, and Esther and I have talked about this too, how do we explain feet reaching coming before hand reaching, when clearly by cephalocaudal progression from head to foot, it's going back backwards. The only way we could get the answer was to look in a systems view with multiple factors, and we felt very clinical, and we felt like we were a clinician trying to work out a real-world problem. It's Doreen. I'd just like to highlight this little hidden piece, and I think this paper makes a huge contribution to the knowledge that development does not occur cephalocaudally. I think it's one of the most elegant examples, clear examples, of a challenge to that assumption, and I'm seeing this paper as as a landmark paper in that argument as well, debunking the cephalocaudal development myth. Thanks very much. This is Jill. I just wanted to add from a clinical perspective, I think that we can take this paper and say we have found something that preterm babies seem to be good at, which is endpoint control. So preterm babies might be bad at coordinating their legs in a kicking way, but they seem to be pretty good at controlling the endpoint of their foot. So I think for clinicians being creative about things you observe that the kids are good at or things that parents report that they're good at and really focusing on that area to help either teach a skill or improve a skill. 
I also wanted to comment on the fact that preterm infants are delayed in hand reaching. So here's an opportunity to teach preterm babies to interact more with toys, to learn about the properties of toys, the texture of toys, to learn cause and effect relationships with their feet. You could design a treatment program where they could play these games with their feet while at the same time they might be delayed in reaching or exploring objects with their hands. Mm-hmm. Jill, it's Doreen. Um, I agree with you. Taking a strengths-based perspective, I think, is really important. What do these children do well? So I think really taking a strengths-based perspective is terrific. This has been a wonderful and rich discussion. And I, I would like to sort of summarize where we are uh, and, and thank you and give you a time to make a final comment. From my perspective, I see this work has really taken us in two dramatically different and remarkably exciting directions. One, the concept of taking this work and thinking about its relevance to physical therapist practice with infants. The other component is to really evaluate and consider the principles upon which we believe development occurs. This study, as mentioned by Doreen, really does provide nice, clear evidence that we better step back and question the importance of cephalocaudal development and its relevance. The other remarkably important contribution that I see this work making is challenging the neuroscience concepts. And Cole said very nicely the need for us to really look at not the brain by itself and not behavior by itself, but the brain-behavior relationship. And if this study doesn't emphasize it, I don't know what else can make it more clear. So I thank you for that. So that's my summary. I would ask each of you if you would like to conclude by saying something. This is Jill. I will just conclude by saying that this was a really exciting project to be a part of in Cole's lab. And when we think about preterm babies and babies who are born with either significant brain injury or not significant brain injury, we're really talking about one of our most fragile populations. And I think that physical therapy is really in a position where we can take these infants and really improve their outcomes teaching them to move in a way that will help them learn to crawl and learn to walk, and then also teach them to learn cause and effect relationships, which will be carried on throughout their toddlerhood and into school ages. I've been working with this quite a long time, but in summary, many of us have watched over the last 10 or 15 years attempts at a paradigm shift from just brain inside a baby to nestling the baby and his or her behavior and the brain in the clinic. And now what you're hearing is more and more, I do want the MRI, I do want the early standardized assessment, but I must do my training in the home, I must work through the family, I want to understand the socialization, how families work with high-risk babies without treatment, and then what can I do to coach them, to train them. The transition's been from, I'm going to have a named, dogmatic, guru-led, magic formula to, if I understand the motor, cognitive, social, and perceptual lives of babies and families and their communities, and couple that with medical, we stand to really understand what Jill said, our most fragile population. So this has been just wonderful. Thank you very much. And Doreen. 
Thank you, Becky. Yes, I'd like to follow up on what Cole was talking about. I've always been excited about dynamic systems theory for the reason that it really looks at things holistically. Here we also use the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health for the same reason, to really try and understand the contextual factors in which children grow and develop. And I do think that future work really looking at infants developing in their contexts is the direction to go and interventions ought to be done in those home-based environments as well. So I do see a really exciting direction coming out of this. Thank you for asking me to participate. Thank you all. This has really been so much fun. I appreciate your participation. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. If you have comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts, let us know via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825.